If you got a Bible, go ahead and grab it. If you got your phone, just pull it out. Google Acts 4. That's where we're going to be. Uh, we binge watch whole books of the Bible here. That's what we do. So we're going to be binge watching the book of Acts uh, indefinitely. It's the longest book in the New Testament. So we're starting when we started. We're going to be done when we're done. For the month of September, we're going to kind of be looking at the book of Acts in a different kind of lens. Uh, next week, we're starting a series called Frontiers. Through this time of COVID, um, we are living, I said this in the family meeting, we are living at, at the crossroads of a global pandemic, of a racial justice revolution, uh, and one of the most anxious election seasons that our country has ever seen. And we are called to be the people of Jesus in that moment. And, and what's happening is God is revealing frontiers that he's calling his people to pursue to have a pioneering spirit and go chase after. And so we're going to look at those four frontiers each week. And I'm just going to let you know now, one of them will be on racial reconciliation and multi-ethnic ministry. And so that will be the sermon in which I make everybody in our church mad uh, because I've either said it too strongly for some or not strongly enough for the others. So that'll be fun. Uh, but remember in that moment that I love you. So... Uh, let's look at Acts chapter 4 together this morning. Acts chapter 4. In 2017, Rod Dreher published a book called The Benedict Option. The Benedict Option, the subtitle is A Strategy for Christians in a Post-Christian Nation. Dreher is a religious columnist, so religion columnist, so you can find his work in the Wall Street Journal, or Times, The Atlantic, the main thrust of his book, the main thrust of his book is this. The only way for Christians to thrive in a post-Christian society, the only way for Christians to thrive in a post-Christian society is to withdraw. To withdraw. Dreher is inspired by the monastic communities that sprung up in the fringes and desert places of the Roman Empire and as the Roman Empire collapsed under its own weight of debauchery and division, uh, the monastic movement thrived by calling people to a radical commitment to the way of Jesus in cloistered, isolated Christian communities. Dreher's book has received a lot of praise, it's received a lot of criticism, but it also, for many of us, sounds rather inviting. If you have been following Jesus for a decade or longer, your head is spinning by the amount of change our culture has undergone in the last 10 to 15 years. Um, and so given the kind of difference that exists between Christians and our secular society, there is something really tantalizing and inviting of the idea of not having to engage in the culture war and instead withdrawing, withdrawing until such a time as the cultural revolution collapses and we can point to the solid rock of Jesus once again. And while some may find Dreher's argument compelling, while some of us who have been following for Jesus, sound, makes, that sounds like a relief, as we turn to the pages of Scripture, as we turn to Acts chapter 4 in particular, what we find is that the way of Jesus is not a way of withdrawal. The way of Jesus is not a way of withdrawal. The way of Jesus is a way of boldness. So Acts chapter 4. Last week we looked at Acts 3. Steph and I co-taught that. We, were, we looked at Luke's account. Sorry, my mic keeps doing. Let's just do it this way. 
you want it, you want it really tight on your face so that when you pop lock and drop it, it goes with you, okay? Um, that's, that's the goal, okay? Now you're, listen, that's the only thing you're going to remember of what I said today, so cool. Let's, let's do the last song and get out of here, you know? Uh, we looked at Acts 3 last week, and Luke reported this miraculous healing of a guy that was born lame, and that doesn't mean that he was uncool. It means he had never taken a step in his life. He'd never walked. He'd never stood on his own. He was a well-known guy in Jerusalem because people saw him begging for money anytime they entered the temple. And Peter and John perform a miracle. In the name of Jesus, they command this guy to get up and walk, and he gets up and walks. And so a large crowd, having seen this guy leaping around and jumping and worshiping, this large crowd gathers in Solomon's portico, a part of the temple, and Peter and John preach a sermon. And this sermon gets them into trouble. Look at Acts 4, starting in verse 1. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed. That word disturbed is the strongest word for annoyance in the New Testament, by the way. They were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that, though, that through Jesus there is a resurrection of the dead. They arrested them and, since it was already evening, put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed it. So that the number of believers now totaled about 5,000 men, not counting women and children. Uh, Peter and John are arrested by the, tap, the captain of the temple guard. We find out later that the religious leaders are worried that a riot is going to break out there in the temple. And so the guard is sent by the Sadducees. The Sadducees are a ruling elite uh, religious class in Jerusalem. There's multiple Jewish sects uh, in Jerusalem at this time. There are the Pharisees and there are the Sadducees. And here's how you remember the difference. The Sadducees, this is a Bible college joke. Are you ready? The, uh, uh, the Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection, which is why they are Sadducee. Oh, right. Now that's the only other thing you'll remember about today. So... Uh, so the Sadducees are mad. Why? Because they're preaching that through Jesus there's a resurrection, right? The Sadducees have a clear piece that there is no resurrection from the dead. They're saying there is a resurrection through Jesus. So they send the temple guard to arrest Peter and John. And while Peter and John are being carried away to jail, by the way, in the classical world, jail is not a punishment. It's where you're held until trial. Uh, and it's evening, so they're just going to be held overnight. But while they're being taken off to jail, the church grows from about 3,000 men to about, about 5,000 men, which, including women and children, now makes a huge Messianic Jewish population within Jerusalem at this time. And so they arrest Peter and John, and the next day they're presented before the council. Look at verse 5 of Acts chapter 4. The next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law, by the way, this is called the Sanhedrin, the religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there along with Caiaphas, John Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. They brought in the two disciples and demanded, by what power or in whose name have you done this? This being healed, this man, the lame man that Peter and John healed are in the courtroom. He is exhibit A in this little episode of Law and Order, okay? Then Peter, filled with the Spirit, 
said to them, rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. Now, in Peter and John's speech here, there's a couple of what the kids call a sick burn. Uh, they turn the tables. Uh, in the words of, uh, of, of Michael Scott, my, 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 how the turntables. Think about it. There it is. Okay. So the first sick burn, the first turnaround is this. They, they say, this Jesus who you crucified. Earlier in the text, it tells us that Caiaphas and Annas are present for this judgment. Caiaphas and Annas uh, were responsible for handing Jesus over to the Roman authorities to be executed. When, when Peter is saying, uh, those who you crucified, he's not just speaking in terms of generality, he's looking at the two men who handed Jesus over, who convinced the Sanhedrin to hand Jesus over. He's looking at them, uh, and he says, uh, and he says, you. This is not a general thing. This is a personal accusation against Caiaphas and Annas. So they go on to say, uh, Jesus is the one reference when the scriptures say, um, Peter and John turn their tables on their accusers again, by the way, because do you notice that he's talking about a resurrection, that Jesus was raised from the dead? He's again talking to the Sadducees. Not only is he turning the tables on them by personally accusing Annas and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, he's turning the tables on them by preaching resurrection to people that don't believe it. To follow the way of Jesus is to proclaim a truth to people who disregard it. So you need to kind of mentally overcome that, name that hurdle that says, I don't want to talk about this when people don't get it because the basic function is people just don't get it. For Jesus, this is verse 11, the one you crucified, uh, he is the one referenced in the scriptures where it says the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Then he says this in chapter 4, verse 12. If you have your own Bible, I'd underline it. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And somebody in the back says, hey, hang, hang on, guys. It's 2020, okay? And you know, Peter, he was talking in the first century, and, and he didn't know there were all of these other religions. By the way, Peter is talking to Jews, but that's another issue. And listen, we're in a more tolerant time. We're in a more loving time. So what, what does this verse mean? What does chapter 4, verse 12 mean? It, it can't mean that there's no other name under heaven which might be saved. No, that's what it means. You see, the, the classical world in which Jesus did ministry, in which uh, Peter and John are operating right now, has almost identical similarity to our culture now. The Roman Empire had a practice of you can worship whatever god you want to worship as long as you also worship the emperor. Right? The Roman Empire was built on the ashes of the, per the Persian Empire, which was built on the ashes of, ashes of the Babylonian Empire, which was a collection of multiple cultures and multiple religions brought together. And so the name and game of the classical world wasn't monotheism, there's only one God. The name and game of the classical world was polytheism. There are many ways to God. And so as much as we want to try to massage Peter's words to mean something different, what Peter is articulating is the uniqueness of Jesus. I talk to people all of the time who uh, are starting to explore religion, 
And inevitably, the conversation always comes down to this. It's all about what we think of Jesus. Anybody can talk about God because God can take any number of forms. But it's when we start talking about Jesus, who Scripture says is the image of the Father, who is God in the flesh, that things become crystal clear. We all have to come to a moment where we personally make a decision about what we're going to do with Jesus. We all will come to a moment where we have to decide what we're going to do with this Jesus because it is this Jesus. He is the one under heaven that, through which we have salvation, through which we get to the Father, through no one else. Peter, by the way, notice this, preaches while he stands next to a man who just hours ago hasn't taken a step in his life. The man born lame, he's been this way for 40 years, he stands right there. And Peter, Peter talks about salvation. When American evangelicals talk about salvation, we talk about a personal spiritual reality. When the New Testament talks about salvation, it's talking about a personal spiritual reality, but it's also talking about a physical reality, and it is also talking about a, so a social reality, right? So yes, spiritually, this guy who, through faith in Jesus' name, was transferred uh, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of life. The benefits of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the turning away of God's wrath, have been applied to him. He has been adopted into God's family. But something else has happened. He has physically been made well. This happens all the time in the Gospels, by the way. Jesus sees a guy, he heals him, and he says, your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. Salvation in the New Testament always has a physical dimension, and it always has a social one. Here's this guy who for 40 years has lived in shame. If you're here last week, we looked at how Peter and John ask this lame man to look at them. They have to ask him to look at them because he has trained himself not to look people in the eye. He has trained himself to live under the weight of his shame. And so what happens is he is socially restored to a place of dignity. He is physically healed and he is spiritually made well. And as, as here, here, here's the divide that has existed in American Christianity for nigh on 100 years. People tend to choose one or the other. Let's focus on the physical and social aspects of salvation through social justice and doing good works. Or let's focus on the spiritual aspects by preaching the gospel and doing Bible studies, and Jesus always brings both together, right? Jesus always causes social good to meet with personal holiness. This is why the, uh, uh, James, uh, Jesus' half-brother, writes this letter and he says, you show me your faith apart from your works. He says, you can't. One of the frontiers that God is highlighting in this time is that churches uh, who faithfully follow the way of Jesus are churches who focus on radical personal transformation that will be week one of the series. And radical justice and mercy. That'll be another week in the series. It's both. It's both. So the council, in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, they deliberate. They send Peter and John and the lame guy, send him out of the room, and they have a conversation. Now here's what's interesting. Luke isn't there. So how does Luke know what this closed meeting of Jewish leaders has to say? A few commentators wonder if Saul, who we will later know as Paul, 
is present for this meeting. There's really no textual evidence to suggest that. I think it's interesting. But it, what we know is that somebody leaked it. Somebody leaked the discussion uh, to them. In verses 16 through 18, uh, they decide that they can't punish Peter and John. Why? They did nothing wrong. They can't punish Peter and John for doing nothing wrong. They can't punish Peter and John because they haven't incited the crowd to violence. So they can't punish them because they haven't done anything wrong. They also recognize later that they can't punish them without causing a riot in the streets. But it does leave the Jewish ruling council, by the way, in a bit of a bind, the same bind that they were in before they crucified Jesus. Now they have thousands of little Jesuses running around Jerusalem, the very thing they were trying to avoid. And this is why, if you were here even a couple weeks prior to this sermon, in Acts chapter 2, we talked about how this opening part is a tale of two temples, this rising tension between the old covenant and the new that will eventually lead to violence with Saul's death. Excuse me, Philip's death while Saul watches. So in verse 18, they call the apostles back and command them never to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But, but look at what they say to each other in verse 13. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. Peter and John speak with a boldness before their religious authorities that is shocking <laughs> to those who hear. And they're amazed by this boldness because literally in the Greek, it says they are idioti. They are idiots. Right? They are agrammatai. They are without words. These men without words, these idiots who without words stand before their ruling council and they are amazed by their boldness why? Because they could tell they had been with Jesus. Listen, you can know everything there is to know about any of the most difficult questions of our day, but if you haven't been with Jesus, you're smart, and that's all you've got. But if you've been with Jesus, you can be an idiot, you can be without words, you can be a common, ordinary person who Jesus uses powerfully in his kingdom. The metrics are just wildly different. So they charge them not to speak anymore. They say, you must never again speak or do anything in the name of Jesus. And they say, oh, guys, we're really sorry. We'll stop. No. They say this. Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We can't stop telling about everything we've seen and heard. Peter and John have been with Jesus. And they have seen some things, and they have heard some things, and they can't stop talking about it. They can't stop talking about what they've seen and what they've heard. They need everyone to know what they have seen and what they heard. And even if they didn't have anything to say, they wouldn't stop talking. Why? Because it's a matter of obedience. Paul in Galatians 1 verse 10 says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I still trying to please men? Because if I was trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Sorry, people pleasers. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. Our purpose is to please God, not people. The biggest spiritual stronghold our church is facing is this fear of ridicule and shame that would come from telling somebody else about the gospel. It's not a certain political party in office. It's not a law. It's not an Enneagram thing. It's not a personality thing. It's not a comfort thing. It's a spiritual stronghold that we have believed a lie that it is better to smooth ourselves out and sand off our rough edges and just be really, really nice. Preach the gospel at all times and necessary. Use words. Every time somebody says that out loud, St. Francis of Assisi rolls in his grave, first of all, because he never said it. And second of all, he started a movement of preachers. Why would a guy start a movement of preachers say, don't worry about preaching anymore? The biggest spiritual stronghold that you and I face, the biggest limitation we have to real spiritual breakthrough is that we believe that we will be ridiculed if we share the gospel. So we don't. But Peter and John are bold for two reasons. They are bold because of what they have seen and what they have heard and because, of what, uh, because they have been with Jesus. And we'll come back to that in a second. But the conclusion of this story is in verse 21. The council then threatened them further. But they finally let them go because they didn't know how to punish them without starting a riot. For everyone was praising God. For this miraculous sign, the healing of a man who had been lame for more than 40 years. Verse 23, jump down. This is like the postscript, P.S., you know. As soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. And when they heard the report, the believers started a political action committee and elected someone who shared their values to the Sanhedrin. They put signs out front that said, make the Sanhedrin great again. They, they found a team, a, a, a white guy and a person of color, because that would really connect the votes, wouldn't it? No. What they did was actually they went back and, and they, they searched the scriptures and they really read them and they really prayed and they realized they were wrong all along and so they changed their theology. No. Verse 24 says, When they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. O sovereign Lord, just listen to this prayer. O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, you spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, saying, why are the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. In fact, this has happened here in this very city. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, and the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But everything they did was all determined beforehand according to your will. And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us your servants, notice what they say in verse 29, great boldness, not relief, not protection, not escape, boldness. In preaching your word, stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. See, they pray for more miraculous signs and wonders because it attests to the power of the preaching. It affirms it. It confirms it. It makes it have teeth. 
And so they pray, and then Luke says that after this prayer, the whole meeting place shook. If you've been in our building before, sometimes the wind hits the roof a certain way, and it crick, like cracks real bad. I was hoping. Wouldn't that have been great? Let's just edit that in. Let's just pretend. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's what's interesting. What Scripture indicates is that you can be filled with the Holy Spirit multiple times. And, and why does it talk about that? Uh, it's not like you lost it and had to be refilled. It doesn't seem to me to be a second work of grace. It seems to be that the Holy Spirit is always willing to pour himself out on us afresh for more power to face the situation. Right? As the challenge increases, the Holy Spirit is given more. So we're filled to overflowing, but he just keeps filling, right? With more power, with more peace, with more presence so that we can meet the task at hand. The meeting place shook. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. Uh, This prayer is copy and pasted from the book of Kings when Hezekiah, there's a, a foreign army invading. They pray this prayer and they ask for freedom and release and safety. But you know what's so interesting is they don't pray for freedom or release or safety. That's what we pray for. That's what American Christians pray for. Comfort, security, safety. They prayed for boldness. They prayed for boldness. What you and I need, more than a president who shares our values or a Congress committed to religious liberty or a Supreme Court that protects our rights, what you and I need more than a cloistered community of people who believe just like you and me, what we need more than a renewed theology that makes us more palatable to our culture, what you and I need more is boldness, boldness. So where do we find it? Where, where does it come from? Where do we find the courage to have the hard conversation? Where do we have the courage to tell others? Where do we find the boldness? The boldness comes from three places, three places. First, boldness comes from being with Jesus. Boldness comes from being with Jesus. These rulers and authorities could see that these ordinary men had been with Jesus. I've gone to school a little bit, done some training in my field. People are very quick to tell me how they've not been schooled or trained in the Bible or theology or apologetics or anything like that. And there's some people in our community, we've got two people in our community pursuing higher education uh, in the areas of, of Bible and ministry. That's pretty cool. Uh, But you know what's more valuable than an education? You know what's more valuable than a lot of experience? You know what's more valuable than really any other commodity? It's being with Jesus. That's what gives us what we talked about last week, spiritual capital. That's where we're the spiritual capital. I can accrue intellectual capital by reading books, but it's spiritual capital that makes a difference. Boldness comes from being with Jesus. It is an overflow of that time we spend with the Lord on a regular basis. It is is based on the time that we spend studying Scripture and praying. 
That's why we're having a day of prayer, by the way. We need boldness. That's what we need. We don't need more programming or cuter things or better graphics. What we need is more boldness. And it comes from being with Jesus. And, and one of the thoughts that I can't get away from as I study the book of Acts, they did not have personal copies of Scripture. They had large portions of it memorized, but they did not have personal copies of Scripture. They didn't have devotionals. They didn't have worship music. They didn't have buildings. They didn't have the leadership structure that you and I are used to. They didn't have Bible study books. They didn't have commentaries. They didn't have any of the things that kind of fill our Christian life together. But do you know what they had? They had boldness. Because an intimate, ongoing relationship with the Holy Spirit gave them everything that they needed to be bold. They, they had boldness because they went and were with Jesus. Boldness comes from being with Jesus. And when we're with Jesus, we start to see and hear all the kinds of things that he does. See, Jesus calls disciples, and that's where boldness comes from. Boldness comes from seeing and hearing the kinds of things that Jesus does. Jesus calls his disciples, he calls his apprentices. That's what you are when you become a Christian, by the way. You become apprenticed to Jesus the way a guy that wants to learn plumbing becomes apprenticed to a plumber. Trying to live your life the way that Jesus lived his. That's what it is. Jesus calls his disciples, his apprentices, to be witnesses, to talk about the things they have seen and heard. And I'll tell you what, Peter and John have seen and heard a ton and so they were very bold, which leads me to believe that if you and I aren't bold, it's because we haven't seen or heard a lot. Because the best that we have to tell anybody about is, you'll really like the pastor at my church. We really love the building that we meet in, and nobody else cares about that. Oh, we have this program, we have this, we have that. Can I just let you know that people don't care about me? People don't care about this building People don't care about the programs that we put on. They want to hear and see it. John Wimber, uh, who started the uh, Vineyard Movement, John, John became a Christian in his teen years and uh, starts studying the Bible here in Scripture, and he goes to a leader at his church, and he goes, okay, so when do we start doing the stuff? And they were like, well, what stuff? I don't know, performing miracles, healing people. And, you know, they said, oh, well, we don't do that stuff. But why don't you go ahead and join this committee? Why don't you go ahead and start making the coffee? Why don't you go ahead and start making the snacks? Why don't you, why don't you help us kind of run the ship? See, we don't have much to talk about because there isn't much to talk about. We don't have a lot of boldness because what have we really seen? What we've settled for is learning more and knowing more and growing more, seeing modicum increases while our besetting sins and the worst parts of our personalities stay with us. But what they saw and heard was people raised from the a guy who could walk when he couldn't walk, Jesus knowing things about people that he had no right to know other than he was the Lord. And then Jesus saying, you can do those same kinds of things. If you and I aren't bold, it's because we have settled for mediocrity in our spiritual life. And we have nothing to tell anybody about. But let's get, sorry to call you out, Melissa Weaver into a group of women praying. Let's get Melissa Weaver praying out loud for the first time. Let's get into a situation where God's answering prayer. Well, now we have something to talk about. 
And your non-Christian friends and neighbors are way more interested in this God doing something, doing the things. But if you and I aren't bold, it might be because we don't have much to talk about. You know, I, I went to Cuba in January, and I talk about this a lot because I didn't want to go. I didn't want to leave my wife, who, just to be with my son, who started waking up at 4.30 in the morning two days before I left just because he wanted to. I don't know if you know this, I don't like being hot. That's why it's like five degrees in here, okay? Because I hate being hot. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but you know, Central America, the Caribbean islands, it's hot there, okay? I don't want to be hot. I said to, I said to Steph while we were packing, I hadn't realized how much you had made my life about my comfort. But boy, had she, because I'm, I, you know what I'm thinking about? I'm like, I wonder what the quality of the sheets are going to be in the bed that I'm going to be sleeping in, you know? Will there be air conditioning? Thank you, Jesus, there was. But, I, you know, I didn't want to go, and I go, and I saw things, and I heard things, and I can't stop talking about them because I saw the things, right? I saw the things. If we're not bold, it's because we're not seeing the things. It's because what we've done, and by the way, this is how you live into this. Bob Goff says that at any given time in our life, God is doing 10,000 things in our life, and we're aware of three of them. So we need to pray for God to increase our ability to see and hear. We need to pray that God would increase our ability to see and hear. So boldness comes from being with Jesus. Boldness comes from seeing and hearing about the kind of things that Jesus does. And then finally, hate to break it to you, boldness comes from obedience to Jesus' words. Boldness comes from obedience to Jesus' words. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. And when presented with a human authority that says, do not talk about Jesus' name anymore, they say, well, am I to obey you instead of God? And what we've done is we've created human authorities over us that have no authority over us. We've, we've given our friends and our family members, our neighbors, the barista at the coffee shop, the coworker, we've given them way more authority over us than Jesus. That's really what's happened. As we said, you can have more authority over me than, than Jesus does. So I won't tell you about the Lord. And I, by the way, if I hear of one single one of you being a jerk after this sermon, I will find you and I will hit you, okay? Because that's the problem. The evangelists in the room are like, locked and loaded, get ready. Oh, Lord. But, but, but it it's, it's comes down to a matter of obedience. And the decision that I have had to come to really in the, I would say the last three years is that Jesus' last command is going to be my first priority. Jesus' last command, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. That will, be my that will be my first priority. So here's what that means as a church. What that means is the administration around here is a little meh. Because I'm not going to get so lost in the details of our life together that I lose contact with lost people. And so if we miscommunicate or overlook something or forget to make something happen because I and you got to be in a relationship with a lost person, then we're going to do it. It comes down to obedience to Jesus' word. It even comes down to this. Do we really believe that God cares about lost people? I mean, if you and I really believe what we believed, we'd be crawling on eggshells and Legos and pins and needles to tell somebody about Jesus. It comes from being with Jesus. It comes from 
hearing the kinds of things, and it comes from when Jesus calls saying, yes, living under the authority of Jesus, not a human being. Let me pray for you. Steph's going to lead us in response time. We're going to take communion today. And, uh, but Father, we pray for more boldness. God, I pray for one, I pray over our church for 100 times the boldness, with the boldness that they speak about a political candidate in this season, I pray for a hundredfold that boldness in speaking about you. I, sp- I pray for as much loyalty as they feel to a political ideology or a politician in this season, there would be a hundredfold loyalty and belonging to you and to your kingdom in this community. And God, I cancel in Jesus' name the places that we authority, the places that we have given authority uh, to, to people that are humans and not to you. And so, Father, we ask that you would fill us again with your boldness, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would make us bold to say what is true, to speak the truth in love. We pray this in Jesus' name.